Luke chapter 4, and it's verses 1 to 13. Luke 4, 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, while tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not force a test on the Lord your God. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have just read about the temptation of Christ, we pray that you'll help us to understand what is here and help us to understand what Christ has suffered on our behalf and what he has resisted also on our behalf. And may we learn from his example how we ought to live in the light of the temptations that we also face. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This chapter and Matthew chapter 4 are parallel accounts, Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Mark makes brief mention of it in Mark chapter 1. That is, Jesus, after he was baptized, and he was over there by the Jordan River, baptized by John the Baptist, he comes now, it says here, returned from the Jordan, that's where he was baptized, and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and the Father spoke to him and said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased, Luke 3, 22. So, from that incident, now he goes into the wilderness. He has received a bit of uh, acknowledgement and commendation and glory there at his baptism, but now he has to undergo a temptation or a series of trials for a while in order to ensure and make sure that he is prepared for his ministry. And we see this commonly in the Old Testament, The people of Israel had to be in the wilderness for 40 years before they could inherit the land of Canaan. Moses was driven into the wilderness also for 40 years before God told him and appointed him to lead the people out of of Egypt, Israel out of Egypt. And also Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Elijah did too. The men of God and the people of God have been put under trials and difficult circumstances for a purpose. Because in the Bible... Humiliation usually precedes exaltation. Humiliation first, exaltation second. So in a sense, that's what is happening here. Christ's humiliation is happening before his public ministry and popularity. Before his popularity, he has this kind of obscurity and infamy in the wilderness, a temptation that he must face. That is one reason. But the other reason is for him to demonstrate by this severe temptation that he was able to resist 
the most severest of temptations by the devil, and that therefore he is perfect, he's modeling for us an example of his perfection, his sinlessness, that he was able to withstand these sins, and that he is a perfect and sinless Savior for us. This is an example of that. And this is the way he will be throughout his ministry. This is why when he dies on the cross, he will be a perfect sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice in terms of no sin, no transgression of the law did he commit. And that is in thought, word, and deed. This will model it for us. And then a third thing we'll notice from this is the way that Jesus responds or rebuts the devil. How does Jesus deal with temptations? This will be an example for us. Verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness. He is full of the Holy Spirit, according to Luke, Luke 1, uh, 4, verse 1. The Holy Spirit fills him, and it is in the Holy Spirit that he goes into the wilderness. This is indicating the fact that the Holy Spirit is empowering him, and the Holy Spirit is leading him or guiding him. It says, was led about by the Spirit. The Spirit leads him into a circumstance of temptation. This, in other words, is by the sovereignty of God. God intended, God appointed for Christ to be led by the Spirit into a circumstance of temptation. Not for God to tempt Christ, but for the <coughs> devil to tempt Christ, and for God to demonstrate and to show by this test that Jesus is indeed perfectly fulfilling the law and is the perfect representative of, Christ, of God on the earth to die for our sins. This is the way it happens also with us. God will lead us into temptations, not in, in order to trip us up and to make us sin, but in order for us to resist and to be tested, to be tested by the, these fires of temptations. And the purpose of the devil, on the other hand, is to trip us up and to make us be entrapped by those sins. He wants to drag us into sin, but God wants to test us and wants us to resist those sins. This is what Jesus is experiencing here. Then it says he's in the wilderness. Mark tells us in Mark 1.13 that he was among the wild beasts. This was an area in the wilderness, the wilderness of Judea, where the wild beasts inhabited that area, but people did not. He was solitary and alone and was with these wild beasts, the dangerous animals. So he has to be placed there in order to demonstrate his ability to resist the temptation. And this lasts for 40 days. For 40 days, and it says in verse 2, that he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. God sustained him without food and without water for 40 days. He didn't eat during that whole time for 40 days. God, it was a miracle, just like it was with Moses, just like it was with Elijah. God sustained them miraculously. This is what also God did for the people of Israel. In their case, however, the change was God gave them manna from heaven and quail. He gave them those kinds of miraculous necessities, but they also could not eat of the kinds of food that they were used to eating in Egypt. But God did sustain them. In this way, too, we have a miracle that is happening. 
Now, it's at this point, uh, as I was reading and studying for this passage, one commentator was saying very forthrightly and explicitly how wrong it is for people to mimic this kind of fasting. There have been people of the past, and even sometimes today, people who try to mimic this kind of fast for 40 days, and they think that they are doing right and good. They think that they are earning God's favor. They look at it as a good work, and they look at it as uh, patting themselves on the back and that God should accept them because they do these things. This kind of fasting, fasting like this to mimic Christ, is contrary to the gospel. We should not do those kinds of things. We're not talking about fastings or in fasting generally speaking. What we're talking about is the attempt to mimic Christ and earn the favor of God. As though the death of Christ is not enough to satisfy the wrath of God. That we need to inflict punishment on ourselves as a good work and present that also to God. So we believe in Christ, we fast, and even extreme fasting for 40 days in whatever capacities people modify that, and they do. They don't do it literally because God is not miraculously sustaining everybody for 40 days. So in a sense, they pretend to mimic Christ and then come to God and say, accept this uh, uh, mimicry. They, they say that, but it's foolishness. And it's not going to lead to salvation. It'll lead to condemnation. Nobody, and all of us, we cannot trust in anything but Christ. Only Christ. Don't erect any tradition, any practice, any belief that subverts the gospel. And once it subverts the gospel, it's perilous, it's dangerous, it'll lead to destruction. Doesn't matter what it is. Then we have the first temptation in verses 3 and 4. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God... Tell this stone to become bread. Notice here, the devil addresses Christ. And uh, firstly, we know that this is a real incident. There are people who deny the existence of the devil. They deny the existence even of this temptation and say that it was just something imaginary, something fictitious that is placed here in Luke chapter 4. But none of that is the case. We've already seen that from the first two verses. And now here it explicitly says, And the devil said to him. So if the devil is fictitious, then Christ is fictitious. And all of this is fictitious. None of this ever happened. So we cannot pick and choose what we like and dislike in the Bible and throw it out uh, willy-nilly. We, sh- we can't do that. We have to have a sober mind and come to the Bible objectively and not read into the Bible what's not there. So, we have a real devil that Jesus encountered, and this devil says, he presents this, um, this condition, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, when he says if, it is a kind of way of bringing some doubt into Jesus' mind. It says, it's just like the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. He, he says, indeed, He throws out indeed as though he's going to agree with Eve. And then he says, has God said? Has God said? He puts doubt into the mind of Eve in order to entrap her. And that's what he's attempting to do here. If you are the Son of God. We already know he's the Son of God. Jesus knows he's the Son of God. Already in chapter 3, verse 22, God the Father said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. He already said that. There's no issue. There's no doubt about that. But the devil brings about doubt, tries to bring about doubt in the mind of Christ as the Son of God 
so that he does not trust God. You see, this is what the devil does. He's trying to make Jesus not trust God, that he is the Son of God, since God declared it in chapter 3, verse 22. You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. This is what the devil does to Jesus, but it's also what the devil does to us. He makes us, in one way or another, he presents temptations and traps to us in order to make us distrust God. That's what the devil did in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, and this is what he does throughout history, and he does it to us all the time. He, he makes us or tries to make us doubt the Word of God. Doubt what God has said about this or that, whether it's major, minor, here, there, whatever it is, he tries to make us doubt God. Doubt God, doubt the Word of God. And here, to do a miracle. Tell this stone to become bread. We all know it's not wrong to eat bread. Actually, today some people say it's a sin to eat bread, but we all know that it's not wrong, biblically speaking, to eat bread. It is, it is good. It's a staple. Uh, starch is eaten all around the world because we all need it. We all know it. We need it. And it's good. And even in the Bible, Jesus is called the bread of life. God fed them miraculous bread, manna from heaven, so on. We have many examples of these things. But here's the problem. It's not the eating of the bread that was the problem in this case, but it was not waiting and trusting that God would deliver him from this temptation, and then after the 40 days, he would be able to eat regular food. This was the problem. The problem was not in the eating of it in and of itself, but the context in which the devil is tempting Jesus to use his miraculous powers to make stones become bread. It wasn't time yet. It wasn't time because he had to be fully tempted and then he would be delivered from it and then be able to eat regular food. That was the problem. Not trusting in the providence of God, not trusting in the promises of God. That's what the devil tried to make Jesus do. And this is what he does to us too. We know we need bread, but what do people do? Some people go on the extreme and they eat too much. And then there's, and, and not just bread. Bread is just a representative of the basics of life. Whether it's bread or clothing or housing or any other thing that we have, people indulge in it and they covet it, they're greedy, they have want too much of it. So that's one problem we have. We don't trust God when we do that. That's the problem. We don't trust God when we do that. We think we need to hoard it all. And then on the other hand, there's others who think that they need to resist and live a very austere and ascetic life, that they can't have this, they can't have that, they make a big deal out of it, or they, they will do that in fasting and say, this day I can eat this, the other day I, I can eat that, but I can't eat this and that and at certain times. And sometimes denominations in, in Christianity, they, they make up these rules, they make up these traditions. And what does it do? It's also wrong because it's not trusting God. Simply do what God's Word says. Don't add to it and don't subtract from it. Just do whatever it says and we'll be fine. That's what people don't do because they don't trust the Word of God. They don't know the Word of God and they don't trust the Word of God. Just do what the Word of God says. Jesus knows this. So verse 4. And Jesus answered him, 
It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. This is the first part of Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Man, this is implied here, man shall not live on bread alone. The implication is the rest of the verse, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That is, Jesus is telling the devil, we have to trust God. We have to trust whatever God's word says, whatever his promises are, whatever his threats are, whatever his word says, that's what we need to trust. Nothing more, nothing less. We're going to trust God, trust his providence, and don't seek to undermine that. Here we see as well, he says, it is written. It is written. He will, he will say that again in verse 8. It is written. And verse 12, it is said. Each time Jesus was tempted by the devil, he used the word of God. If Jesus used the word of God each time to silence the devil, and we are to silence the devil and his mouthpieces, the Bible expects us to silence the devil and his mouthpieces by Scripture. Use scriptural facts, scriptural logic to silence the devil. He does so. Here's an example of how we are to do so. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. When the Apostle Paul describes the qualifications of the, the elder or overseer pastor, he describes in verse 9 that he is holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Why is this necessary for the pastor to be equipped and able to do so? Verse 10, for or because there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced. There we have it who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. There, the pastor is supposed to be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict to the extent or to the point of silencing the rebellious talkers. He must be able to silence them by his persuasive use of Scripture. And why? because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Jesus was a master of this. He did this with the devil here in Luke 4, but he also did it with the scribes and Pharisees on numerous occasions. He silenced them so that they dared not ask him any more questions any, any longer, it says in one place. So this is the kind of thing that must be done in order for the truth to abound and for falsehood to be muzzled. Do it with the word of God. We all should do that. Verse five, the second temptation. The second one is in reference to the worship of God. Who is worthy of worship? And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, 
the devil says that he'll give Christ by showing him all these kingdoms. And presumably they are still in the wilderness and he is doing it in terms of a vision. Because it says there in verse 4, and showed him all the kingdoms uh, of the world in a moment of time. So he's showing all of this glory of the nations, that is being able to rule over and conquer all the nations. And this is the temptation that if Christ worships Satan, then all that Satan has, he will give to Christ. Now it is true, 2 Corinthians 4.4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. In one sense, the world is in the power of the evil one, as John says in 1 John 5.19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And And the God of this world, Satan, has blinded everybody. So in that sense, he does have power. And he is saying, I will give you everything if you just worship me. Well, for one, knowing the history of the devil, who's going to believe him? Because John 8, 44, even Jesus knows he's a liar and he's been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. From the beginning of, in Genesis 3, he's been a liar. So there's no need to trust him. But this is our problem. Jesus doesn't trust him. We, we know that. But this is our problem. When the devil presents something juicy, something beautiful, something delightful before us, we believe him. We don't think he's a liar. We don't say he's lying, he's deceiving me. This can't be true. It won't be as good as he says it'll be. We don't do that. We say, hey, man, you're a swell chap. Let me me do what you just suggested. That's what we do. We don't actually resist and fight back. And we don't say, no, you are a liar, and I'm going to flee. I'm going to walk away from you. That's what we have to do. We have to understand his true nature. When he presents something, it's actually a lie. Don't believe it. And then the other thing about worshiping him. Do you, do you think that it is a good thing to worship the devil? How can we, whenever we sin, we are letting the devil and our flesh master us, right? We're letting sin master us through the means of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So. In that, those ways, when, whenever we sin, we are worshiping the devil. But how is it that worship of the devil could ever be a good thing? Does it, lead a, does it lead to the fruit of the Spirit? Does it lead to peace and harmony, grace, love, mercy? Does it le- lead to good, good works? Does it lead to glorifying God? It doesn't lead to any of that. It leads to misery, contention, strife. That's what it leads to. So we should not think for a moment that it's wrong, or, I mean, that's good to detract from the worship of God. That's what the devil wants to do. And he is tempting Jesus with this. If you worship before me, it shall all be yours. He puts the bait out there and says, just worship me. But Jesus answered in verse 8, he, Jesus answered and said to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Taken from Deuteronomy 6.13. Jesus answered to him. It's a confrontation. The, uh, the devil says something, then Jesus says something right back to him that the scripture says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Only God deserves worship. 
Isn't that what the first part of the Ten Commandments says? You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Doesn't it say that? So God, with the first uh, four of the Ten Commandments, is driving home the point that he alone should receive worship. He, and he says in Isaiah 42, 42, 6, that my glory I will not give to another. I will not give my glory to another. Only God should be worshipped. There is only one true God, and He alone should be worshipped. There aren't two or three, or 333 million, or any other God under any other name, even if they say there's only one God. Allah is not God, and no other God. The Jehovah's Witness God is not God. Whatever other conceptions people have of God are false. There's only one true and living God, and it is the God of the Bible. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as we saw from Luke 3:22, The Holy Spirit descended on, in bodily form. The Son is the one being baptized. And the Father says from heaven, This, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Father, Son, Spirit. One God, He alone should be worshipped. Verses 9 to 12. 9 to 12, we have the third temptation. And he led him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now the devil, again testing the identity of Christ and also the love and concern of God and the power of God. He's doing all of this with this temptation in verses 9 to 11. He's putting all of these in jeopardy. The identity of Christ, the power of God, the love of God, the concern of God. If you're the Son of God, God has already said from Psalm 91, 11, and 12 that He'll take care of you. He'll send His angels to take care of you. Is He going to take care of you? Let's see if He'll take care of you. Let's watch His power. Let's see His miraculous power at work. That's the temptation He presents. But actually, what he's trying to do is he's trying to stir up pride. He's trying to stir up pride in Christ for Christ to prove himself. I've got to prove who I am. And I'm going to do something that God didn't tell me to do, but I'm going to do it and then see if God will help me. Because God says he loves me. He says I'm his beloved son. He says he'll take care of me and all of that. So... This in, is what the temptation is. In pride, prove yourself and see. And what he's tempting Christ to do is to, in pride, go and do something that's unnecessary, unneeded, rash, and foolish. To do something that's unnecessary, rash, and foolish. And he's taking this verse out of context. He's taking Psalm 91, 11 to 12, out of context. Of course, God takes care of His people, and of course God uses angels, which the psalm is addressing. We know also from Hebrews 1.14, Are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Angels are ministering spirits, and God uses them to help us. But nowhere in the scripture does it say that we should plunge into something unheeded and rashly, and foolishly, something that is contrary to the Word of God, 
and then say, well, God said His angels are going to help me. We, don't, we shouldn't do that. We, we should not, for example, just walk out into the middle of the road and say, well, I'm going to heaven and God is a God of power and uh, I belong to Him and He says He'll take care of me. He won't let the sun smite me by day or the moon by night. He'll guard my going out, my coming in from this time forth and forever. You know, these promises are in the Bible, or in, in this case, He will give His angels charge concerning you, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So I'm going to walk out in the middle of a busy street, and everything will be just fine. I don't need to look in any direction, and I won't be hit by a car. That's idiocy. <coughs> That's what He's doing here. Now, that was an extreme example I just gave. However, every day, we do this kind of stuff. We do this kind of stuff. Things that are beyond the Word of God, we, we just jump into it, and then we sit, think, well, God's going to take care of it anyways. Everything will be just fine anyways. After all, I'm secure in Him, and everything will be just fine. That's what we do. He's tempting Jesus with the temptations that we face every day. Don't worry about it. God will take care of it. He loves you. He already told you He loves you. So just go ahead and do it. Just go ahead and do it. Do, do that foolish thing. It's okay. But Jesus does not succumb. Verse 12, And Jesus answered and said to him, Note that, by the way, and said to him, Each time Jesus answered him and said to him, He addresses the problem then and there. Here is another problem that we face. Often, when somebody says something to us, we'll say, Well, I'm not, I'm not going to get into it. And by not getting into it, we mean, I'm not even going to give an initial answer. I'm just going to walk away or I'm going to just compliment him, or I'm going to pray about it, and maybe uh, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, ten years from now, I'll, I'll deal with it, but I'm not, going to, I'm not going to say anything now. I'm just going to leave it alone. And then if I do talk about it with somebody, I'm not going to talk about it with him, who just said something wrong, contrary to the Bible. I'll talk to somebody else about it and never deal with it with the person directly. But Jesus doesn't do that. We see many, many examples in the Gospels, how Jesus, whenever there was a problem, whenever somebody said something, thought something, and even when he knew they were thinking something and didn't say anything, that he could tell from their expression or that he could tell from their thoughts, he would bring it up. He would bring it up and he would confront it and, and put it on the table and deal with it. He would deal with things like that. He dealt with things as they needed to be straight to the person. So, he says, it is said, another way to say it is written in the scriptures, you shall not force a test on the Lord your God. This is from Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not force a test or you shall not tempt. Okay, the temptation. This is what the temptation is. Going beyond the word of God and saying, well, God, you said you'll take care of me, you'll protect me, you love me. And so going beyond it and then falsely putting our hope on the love of God or the power of God that everything will just turn out just fine even though I pursue sin. That's what he's saying. He, when we do that, we are forcing a test on God or we're tempting God and God says, don't do that. Don't ever do that. Just do what I say in my word. Don't go to the right, don't go to the left. Don't add and don't subtract. Just do what I say in my word and you will not be tempting me. You will not be forcing me. You, you will be doing what is according to my will. And 1 John 5.14 says, 
If we ask him anything, and if it is in accordance with his will, he hears us. He hears us when it's according to the will of God in the word of God. Proverbs 28.9 says, He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Our prayers can be detestable to God if we pray for something and it's contrary to the word of God. If it's contrary to the word of God, it's contrary to the will of God. If it's contrary to the will of God, we're tempting God. We're forcing a test on him. And he says, don't do that. Just do what my word says. 13. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. When it says he finished every temptation, that is every temptation for that occasion, because the last part of the verse says, uh, until an opportune time. This is what often, this is what happened with Jesus, but this is also what happens often with us. Sometimes temptations will be very severe. It might be for a day, it might be for a few days, it might be for a few weeks. A temptation of this or that sort will be very severe. They will bombard us. This is the devil attacking us. And then we have relief. We'll have some kind of relaxation of that. And that might last also for a few days. This is the way the devil works. He'll press us and press us and press us. He'll nag us and then he'll back off and then he'll come back. Sometimes with the same sin, same temptation, sometimes with other temptations. What should we do in the meantime? It doesn't say clearly here, but we know based on Christ's character that he would have been meditating on the word of God. He would have been faithful to God. He would have been doing good works. He would have been doing what God expected him to do and preparing himself for the next temptation. Sometimes we speak of the calm before the storm in the Christian life. Now, this is what's happening here. There will be a storm, and then there will be a calm. There will be a calm, and then there will be a storm. This is what happens. This is the way life is. This is the way it will be until we meet our Lord face to face. So be ready. When the temptations have backed off, don't walk in pride. Don't walk as though you are the, the king of kings, that you have a victory, and that nothing like that would ever happen to you again. Don't think that. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. While you have some relaxation, while you have some kind of reprieve and retreat from Satan, he's gone away temporarily, don't use that to boast and don't use that in order to pursue sin, another kind of sin, thinking that that kind of sin that just uh, went away from you will never happen again. No. Use that time to prepare yourself, to fortify yourself. Be in the Word. Be among godly people. uh, Pray. Do the will of God. Be faithful. Be zealous for the things of God. Be about the things of the Father as Jesus was. Do those kinds of things until the next, next temptation comes. Then you will be that much more strong before the next time. And then you'll be able to resist better and better and better and better. This is the the model that has been presented here. Let's be like Christ. Resist with the Word of God, with determination, trusting the Word of God, knowing what God has said about us, 
don't go beyond it and don't go from one side to the other. Just stick with the Bible to resist all temptation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.